Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, and uh, welcome to today's program, uh, the first Monday of March. And you know what that means. Um, it's Educators Panel Day. And, um, well... I have to confess, as much as I love doing any town high school, well, I'm not going to say I like one better than the other, I sure do love educators' panel days. Um, we have three educators who are thoughtful, um, reflective, compassionate, love collaborative problem solving. That doesn't hurt. Uh, and so, so today is uh, Educators Panel Day, and of course we have some sobering things to talk about today, but it doesn't mean that um, that's the only thing we have to talk about today. But um, yes, it's happened again. Um, another tragic school shooting. Tragic all the way around. Um, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit today, but I'm sure perhaps other things as well. Um, so, you know what, without further ado, let's bring on our educator panel members, Carol, Tom, Nina. How are you all? Good. Good, thank good, you. Thanks. Good. Um, and I'm glad we're doing this again today. We only, after today, have two educator panel um, programs left because we only do this through the school year and we take the summer off. So... We better say all of the important things we have to say in the next three <laughs> programs, lest we not be able to say them until September. But um, as I mentioned, it has happened again. Um, a, a student goes into school and apparently randomly, we're not sure, I only know what I read in the newspaper, um, shoots people. Um, and it isn't always shooting, sometimes it's stabbing. Um, but it seems to me that, uh, well, we have a school counselor and two principals here. Um, I'm betting you all have some insights about um, your take on this, how to prevent it, applications of collaborative problem solving, um, where to begin with um, a student who shoots other kids in a building. Um, I have no preference on who goes first, whoever wants to go first. Tom, you're first. <laughs> I just volunteered him. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I think that 
that um, this is a very complex topic, and and I think that it would be um, very dangerous to generalize or to make assumptions about whatever is going on with anyone psychologically who chooses this particular avenue to express their their emotions. I I would say, however, that it you know it does represent a lot of grave concerns in our society. Uh, pr- primarily a failure to listen and to notice the warning signs that that could lead to a school shooting on a variety of many adults. Um, you know, it's just it's really hard to miss a kid that's at that level, but it happens. And on the other side, it it also um, goes back to the whole point that the more that we teach children how to how to experience the empathy step, how to express their feelings and, and hurt. Um, in, in a way that is compassionate and caring, I think we certainly would reduce the likelihood of this type of thing occurring. So if children learn in K-1, 2, how to, um, in those early years, how to express their feelings and people listen to and validate their feelings and help them to figure out ways to solve their problems um, by working with other people, the likelihood of them using those skills again later is very high, the same way uh, it's just like literacy intervention. You know, if we if we if we intervene prior to the end of second grade, all the research shows that we are exponentially more likely to reduce a child's likelihood of failing out or dropping out of high school. Um, whereas if you intervene post the end of second grade, you're basically doing remediation for years because it's very difficult to catch them up after the end of second grade. I think the same thing is true socially and emotionally. If we can really teach them a lot of skills when they're younger and foster them and and, and have programs and ways for them to work on their feelings and how to express them and social issues, then we are likely to reduce this type of thing from occurring. Yeah, I can, I'll just add to that. The first thing that I thought of when I heard uh, about this story was just the importance of listening because, as Tom was saying, um, kids express themselves through different ways and um, you know the importance of of teaching children to be able to that that not only how to to speak and how to express themselves and how to you know try to look for solutions to problems, but also for them to know that there are people that will listen to them. Um, I was uh, I was just talking the other day um, with I'm trying to remember the context of the conversation now, but they had mentioned that uh, they saw or heard a story about uh, in one large high school. Um, certain staff members who were really open to spending time with kids and just listening, they actually had uh, like a sign, like a handprints painted around the doors of their classrooms, so that kind of like the old block parent where you know kids could easily identify, even if you don't know the person in this room, this is an adult who will take the time and will drop things to listen to you. And I think it's really important for kids to know that that people are out there that will spend time with them and are, are willing to listen. And I was thinking the same thing and also thinking that if children had a chance to also see that problems could be solved early on, so not only are they listened to, but that it works and that they have mm-hmm. some needs met early on, then they'd be more apt to talking and um, trying to be able to know that that the problems can be solved, that whatever was happening or whatever, however big it is, that it all goes back to unsolved problems and lagging skills that need to be focused on. How much do you all worry about this in your own buildings? 
I have to say that in some of the high schools that I've worked at, I don't know if it's my personality or, or it bothered me or I was more concerned about it than other people that I've worked with. So if uh, I always have felt that if I expressed my concern about it, that it was usually pretty unanimously dismissed by my colleagues. Um, I, I will say that I know of some incidents that I cannot share in this format that would be startling to some people. Um, in buildings that I had worked at previous to, to my last two positions. So in other words, the high school and middle school levels that I've worked at, I know of some things that were pretty concerning. And, and I think that, again, in the buildings that I had been employed, people did listen and things were taken care of and handled very well. But it, but it, it, is, uh, it is very, very difficult to gauge the impact of three things, three or four things. And the first one is the level of violence that children are exposed to today is far, far greater than anything human beings have ever endured in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the history of, of, human, uh, of mankind. And it's gone up exponentially in the last 10 years since technology has advanced so much. The second thing is that the rate of impulsivity for kids has also exponentially increased because the access to information, knowledge, and stimulation is so immediate that that, that impulsivity, um, it, it actually would probably be, could be in some ways considered, you know, a lagging skill. And then I think the third thing is that the, the lack of adult interaction with children to help them to build the capacity with which to choose their response to stimulus is far less than it's ever been proportional to the amount of time that the kid's on TV. So in other words, the kid is watching TV or playing video games, and that's not the whole thing to blame with this. But while they're doing that, they're not building a relationship with their parents. That, to me, is the bigger impact. Or, or they're not building a relationship with a coach or another healthy adult. I have to be very careful not to blame this on parents because I don't feel that anyone's really to, necessarily to blame. I just think that it's we need to be aware that when children are playing video games for hours on end, they are not connecting with healthy adults who are teaching them how to handle their feelings in a healthy way. Right, and then the more lacking skills at schools, hard to match match what they need. And if for years kids aren't really getting what they need in school, then it's in schools not they're not fit, they don't fit the mold of school. Then I that, that frustration and that anger just imagine just builds. Hmm. Well, you know, I've in my some of my talks lately, I've been saying that I think we adults who live in the Western world and live in the information age are at risk for losing our empathy, uh, that we're going numb because we have so many demands for empathy being placed upon us. Um, as I always say, you can't turn on the TV without a demand for empathy being thrown at you. You can't open a news magazine without seeing a distended belly in a part of the world where there's not enough food, um, uh, people dying in parts of the world where their own governments are attacking them, um, tsunami victims, um, victims of you name it, um, uh, kids with cleft lips, kids with any variety of physical and emotional disabilities. And I think that the pace at which we are having demands of empathy being thrown at us 
are much greater than ever before and perhaps greater than our capacity to respond adaptively. And so I, just one man's theory, think we are at risk for going numb. That's the adults. But, Tom, as you were saying, I think that kids' lives these days, it's not that they are devoid of opportunities for empathy, but that um, they are distracted by many other things that are, are not related to feeling somebody else's pain and appreciating how one's behavior is affecting other people and appreciating how one is coming across. And so I wonder if kids are less empathic. You know, one of the things I read, the theories about why a kid walks into a school and shoots people are in great abundance the instant it happens. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading in Time magazine, one theory was that he had been bullied. Um, But then that started being called into question. Um, But... Bullying is now the you know the buzzword in schools. It's uh, something that every school, except in two states, every school is mandated to do something about. I'm sorry to report that in many states, anti-bullying efforts have been largely oriented toward punitive interventions, um, which are certainly not going to teach kids the empathy to have them not bullying and the skills that they need to handle being bullied better. Um, What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, we just had, uh, I don't know if the same initiative uh, is is down where you guys are, but on February 29th we have uh, something called Pink Shirt Anti-Bullying Day. And uh, it stems from an incident, I think it was out in the East Coast in Canada a few years back where an an eighth-grade boy on his first day coming to school, um, wore a pink shirt, and some some kids uh, were bullying him about it. And so some older students saw it happening, and they went out to the thrift store that night and bought up as much pink as they could find. And every day that week, more and more kids wore pink um, until these bullies kind of got the message that, you know, you take on this kid for wearing pink, and you're taking on all of us. And while that is a rather rare occurrence, I believe it's become um, an annual event, but I know that um, in our schools, it's we do focus a lot on prevention. We have anti-bullying curriculum that we implement um, yearly, and a huge part of that is, is teaching um, assertiveness skills to kids to how do you step in or say something or stand up for yourself if things are happening, but a, hu- but a, a fair amount of it as well is um, doing things like class meetings where kids can talk about, you know, what what they might have experienced, how else might kids have been able to solve it, um, trying to build that empathy that people around you may be hurting in different ways and it might cause them to either act in a way that is seen to be bullying or to be bullied and uh, and trying to build build empathy in kids that way. So our efforts are, are aimed on prevention. Um, there are always some people who feel that, as you mentioned, punishment or punitive measures or discipline is, is what's needed, but in most of the cases that I've dealt with, um, it's really been getting at what's what's going on for these kids underneath and why is you know that's bringing out this behavior towards other other kids. So, and often I love that none, really of, it's, none of that is punitive. It sounds fantastic. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, 
Yeah, honestly, I, that's and we do try to be preventative. Our our school district has a a website where kids can report anonymously um, things that are going on if they might have heard about a fight that's going to happen or somebody being bullied or something that they saw on Facebook. They can report it anonymously to our safe schools department, and that goes to the the school administrators. So they can you know look into it and try and and get to it with in a safe way so those kids aren't you know feeling like they're being snitches or whatever. I think at the elementary school level that the word bully has been a huge detriment. Um, I, I, that The word is thrown around so much with the younger mm-hmm. kids that we spend, I think I spend, I spend so much time trying to educate the kids that are saying that others are bullied, that they're being bullied. And also um, it, I think it takes away all those children's empathy because they, they're being encouraged not to have empathy. They're being encouraged to come and tell me about the kids that are, that are bullying them. And, you know, honestly, at this age, I I rarely see that it's a one-sided bullied, bullying situation. It, it really mm. is goes back to the lagging skills, and there's always an unsolved problem, and there's always something going on with both children, and, and a lot of it is kids' developmental, and a lot of it is things that we need to work, we can work out through problem-solving, but... I think it's it's such a big issue, and we've been trying to figure out how to educate parents and families to not throw that word around because um, it's more and more each year. Well, I, I think it goes back to that that defining the the terminology is 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 important, but not as important as empathy. And not that I'm right. I'm saying I agree completely with what you're saying that the term bullying usually means um, pervasive, ongoing and between one or more individuals consistently over time. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we use the term bullying sometimes conversationally like, well I felt bullied as a result of that conversation. Well that's not no bullying is right. is is pervasive and ongoing and and it's a situation where one person feels power over the other and uses it inappropriately to get the person to do things that they want them to. And I think that that, that goes back to professional development for staff. Yep. to understand the difference and to look for um trends in data in the schools because you know just in and just looking over the 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 New York Times article about this this situation you know it, it is uh the only link that they offered in that initial article that I saw was um that that the 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 perpetrator and the victim shared may have shared a girlfriend yes um so i think it's really Go ahead. No, it's just it's really really hard to really hard to 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 um sometimes define what's going on. And that's where having a general aware an awareness of trends can be really beneficial and it's re- really hard in a high school when when kids are seen by seven different adults and then potentially hall monitors, cafeteria workers and bus drivers for them to link the information together is very complex. Mm-hmm. And so looking for those trends and training staff to be aware of potential trends or to have a central location to which to report things that may or may not be concerning could be as simple as having a database with every student's name and you put an X if you saw something that was concerning. You look at one kid's name and there's 18 Xs. You know, you might want to check into that one. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be this very convoluted, long system of reporting. It's just got to be something that helps you to track that lots of different people are seeing little bits of things. Definitely, that we, we um, reminds me of this past few past past month. Our staff did that activity where we listed every child's name and to see if they were connected to an adult in the school. And it really mm. was um, 
you know, it did open our, our minds at this age, and we're trying to do it for our whole district to see that even if you think um, that you're, that kids are connected or that you're connected, we really defined a personal relationship and defined what that would look like for staff and for children and you know, I think it was eye-opening for a lot of a lot of people. We were really honest and were surprised by how many children really don't have those authentic, genuine relationships. And you know, reminds just really getting that data and looking at it and being able to do something about it at this age and keep it going. Mm-hmm. Realizing that this is an imprecise science, you can't know what's going on in every kid's head every second. Aside from having metal detectors in every school so as to make sure that metal isn't being brought into the building, and by the way, that's not foolproof either, how do you keep this from happening? Well, I I think it really does... it has to be a, a multimodal approach as as there should be a multimodal approach to any issue that a school faces because of the complex nature of schools um, with regard to school culture. Um, I'm sorry, these answers just are very complicated because it, it, it really, it's like literacy instruction. We have a wonderful reading program, but the reading program isn't going to work for every student. Right. And so we have to teach staff how to be responsive to the specific needs of every child well, it would be the same thing for social and emotional learning. We absolutely have to teach every staff member how to be responsive to children and to be a, what to be aware of and what to look for. And and that takes time and, and training, and, and it takes money. And, and frankly, those things are not exactly in abundance these days. So it does require also to have wonderful people like, like Nina, who are guidance counselors on staff, to kind of handle not only working with students in small groups, but there is a or individually, there is, a, a for most principals, a, a relatively large professional development expectation of guidance counselors, where they're teaching staff what to look for, how to, how to be responsive, and how to grow. And I think that is really an, a very important and often overlooked role of the guidance staff, the same way the, the literacy experts in the building should be working with kids and supporting classroom teachers and getting their classroom instruction to be the best that it can be be a yeah, similar goes, model. Right, and it goes back to relationships and listening. When I, when you talk to kids that have mm-hmm. dropped out or really struggled in the high school, they always talk about missed relationships. And uh, I just remember one student we had talk at our dropout prevention board and just say, you know, it took it was it wouldn't have just been one person. It would have taken a lot of people to notice me and talk to me and not just give up after a few a few talks. So I think it's that that relationship is what saves kids, and it's about listening and empathy. You can't have a relationship without listening. What strikes me, though, is that we have ways of tracking how a kid is doing in reading. How well do we track the kids who we're concerned about the most? Not as it relates to reading, but as it relates to potential violence, once again realizing that this is a very imprecise science, um, troubling only in the fact that many of these kids have a similar profile. Mm -hmm. Do we track it? Well, I don't know that it's it's 
that we track it in terms of you know a consistent assessment measure over time. But um, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly fortunate in my context. I have a fairly small school, and we have a, an amazing support staff. So um, on a regular basis, we sit down and actually go through our class lists and say, you know, who who's kind of on the radar right now, who or who's off the radar, which is sometimes more important. Like we never hear anything from this student. Mm-hmm. But, you know, are they? Are they here? Are they engaged? Um, we have we're an inner city school, so we have programs that are aimed specifically at engaging students who might be disengaged, and really noticing them and saying, how can we bring them in and you know give them a leadership role in the school or get them involved in an activity or connect them with someone. So I think it's just that frequent you know the activity that Nina was talking about, where you kind of go through your your school body and and see who's connected, but it kind of has to be frequent and, and reviewed and, and refreshed a lot because your your student population change, their circumstances change. A, a student's parents might break up or, you know, they may move to a new school or have new kids move into the school or, um, you know, just something, you know, a family member might be sick or, or just you never know what could happen or a relationship could fall apart between, you know, in high school, a, a boyfriend and girlfriend. And, and it's just being, you know, uber aware <laughs> And and constantly kind of I think um, as a team with all the different people who work with kids being having that time to come together and say what do you, what do you see with this student what are you seeing with this student and trying to put the little pieces together and never ignoring anything um, you know even a drawing a poem a piece of writing a comment that seems you, you know, take it as a one off you might go that was weird that they said that or that was weird that they drew that. Um, don't keep quiet about it. People need to speak up because it could be nothing, and if it's nothing, great, but it might be something. And so we really have to not ignore those little warning, warning signs and calls for help that kids are giving us. And it sounds like you're doing it. Um, but I can also see circumstances in which people um, are so caught up in other pressures that are placed on people in schools mm-hmm. that it would be very easy to um lose track of this in particular this is not in many schools what people are spending a good part of their time thinking about or talking about mm-hmm. i find that this is one of the easiest things to lose track of given what we're usually focused on in schools. What do you all think? Yeah, and I think it, for our school, we feel like we can do it just in our in our building, and it is hard once with transitions. I think children do get get lost and or have to start over with some of the relationships. You know, we have our children for five years, which gives us a pretty big advantage. We feel like we know them really well. But once they leave, you know, you know they have to start over. And I think we, we really could work on our transitions, and the guidance counselors try to meet together and, and do that as much as we can. But it isn't always the focus, and I think it would be you know, it would be really beneficial to get there. And I also worry we, we have a pretty big transient population, so we have a lot of kids that move in and, and out. I, you know, I worry about about those children as well, because then you know that that's getting lost in the reading, and academics might not get lost the tracking and from school to school, but the the other data could definitely get lost. We use our student uh, assistance teams forms 
to track some of that data. And what we've done is we've put the ALSUP and the Plan B flowchart in our student assistance team forms, and those forms go with the kids from grade to grade. So they're in the cumulative folders. Um, we also have the student assistance team meet regularly. When I worked at a high school, we had a multidisciplinary team of people, which included the police, the athletic director, all the guidance counselors, the social worker, the nurses, um, and all administrators within the high school. They met every week for an hour and a half, and it was mandatory. You couldn't get out of it. You had to be there. And it really made a big difference because what we would do is we would we would bring up students that were of concern, but we were also able to connect all the different pieces. So the guidance counselors would usually hear from all the teachers, and the teachers were expected to let the guidance counselors know of concerns. And then and then the, the kids' names were put on the, the list, and we would all talk. And I could not believe some of the things that I would find out about the students that I was serving through that team because um, – I might know so-and-so had this, and then another person would be like, well, yeah, that kid's girlfriend, so-and-so that we discussed last week. Oh, really? Well, what happened with that? Well, we found out that they were doing drugs over here, and we needed to help them out, and we got them some support. I mean, it was really beneficial to have all of those people in one room for an hour and a half every week. Uh, so it, it created a net. I still think that this idea, though, of trying to figure out some way to have, like, almost tick mark data, you know, like like some way to figure out, like, you know, uh, that they were just little concerns about one kid, so you can see it would be an interesting idea, but I, have, I haven't followed it through to fruition. It's just a thought. Carol, how do you all make sure that you are doing what you described on a regular basis so that it's actually systematic? Well, we have our school-based team, which is, sounds like the same as your school assistance team, on a weekly basis where either any, any staff member basically can refer a student um, to be discussed by the team. Um, we also just had a regular um, Wednesday morning support staff team meeting because some of our, you know, our support staff is itinerant, so we'll have, you know, a counselor there two days a week, and this child care worker here is this day, and so we kind of found the one day that everyone was there, and uh, we would just touch base first thing on Wednesday morning just to catch up on same type of thing, you know, where that Tom was talking about, where one person might have talked to somebody's parent. Another one, you know, the teacher saw something or, you know, I might have noticed something on the playground. And so putting all those pieces together, um, it's really important. And you have to, just as Tom was saying, you have to make sure that that time is protected and that um, that you that you get all the people that need to be there together because otherwise you're always missing pieces. This year, as you know, um, our... our uh, teachers have been on some job action and so I... Either sometimes the teachers haven't been at meetings or I haven't been allowed to be at meetings. Um, and it's it's been a lot more difficult to get all those pieces pulled together because I might have some knowledge of something and the teacher might have another piece that they've, you know, and it's you got to get all those puzzle pieces together. So protecting that time and making sure that the people who need to be there are there. Share, share, share. Mm. Is it inevitable that these things will happen every so often given that and I'm thinking about and I know that this is a uh, select sample but on in restrictive therapeutic facilities in patient units residential facilities prisons they often have grand rounds or rounds every morning where they're discussing every kid who's on the unit now I often take issue with what it is that they discuss, but because uh, sometimes it can be perfunctory. 
And sometimes they're talking about things that are not the most crucial things to be thinking about. And even though they're talking about each kid every day, at least once, there are still eruptions. Once again, I think that that has more to do with what they're talking about, but also perhaps the population they're serving. But I guess it's an example of they're talking about kids a lot, and yet they still um, can't prevent bad things from happening. Mm-hmm. Is is it inevitable that bad things will happen no matter what we do to try to keep them from happening? Clearly, the answer is we have to do our best. But even though we're doing our best, are, are things going to slip through the cracks? I, I think it takes a lot of courage to answer that question, Ross. Yeah. Tom, you've got courage. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is yes, because it isn't a school issue. It's a societal issue, and we have to continue to remember that these these things that have happened are a rude wake-up call for our society and the things that we are choosing to allow our children to do. Um, um, you know, the one thing the New York Times article was clear about was that um, – um, this young man had had some struggles in his life, and I think that, that the essence of collaborative problem solving is that the empathy step builds relationships, and it teaches people how to state concerns in a healthy way so that we can grow and learn together. And that is, I mean, I, I really truly believe that this model is r- really important, but it's kind of like, you know, you have data-rich schools that are information poor, tons and tons of literacy data or dropout data. Mm-hmm. that is not being utilized to affect one ounce of change where the rubber hits the road in instruction and in classrooms. So if there isn't enough professional development for staff to really learn how to use these different approaches that we have to support students academically and socially and emotionally, our efforts will continue to fail. Right, I think it's a matter of catching up um, as well. I kind of think of our most difficult students here and how it's going to, it takes a long long time to hmm. reduce the challenging behavior and kind of get ahead of ourselves like i feel you know we're, we're trying to catch up with with implementing the model and you know i think that on the looking at society it would it's going to take a while to if the shift happened you know more globally then it would take just as, take time to catch up so that horrible things like this wouldn't be happening or at least a lot less frequently Carol, thoughts? <laughs> um, I, I just think, I mean, it's, I think what Tom said nailed it. I think um, we would all love to say that, yes, we can we can do it. We can have that idealism and believe that we are going to change the world through the work that we're doing. And in a way, we do. I mean, every, every action that we take, every child we work with, it does change the world for the better. Um, but it's such a complex issue, the kids that, that – um, are are committing these crimes are are incredibly complex and sometimes you know the best efforts of of people who work with them um we can't guarantee that that it's going to work but we certainly will keep trying i know that much and every time that um, we come on this program and any time that we speak with our colleagues and any time that we bring this idea of working with students to help solve problems every time we bring that to another professional then we're making uh, we're, we're, we're breaking down the, the chances that it will happen more and more. So 
while we, we don't, right, I think, yeah. And we don't always know the ones that we did prevent something from happening or the, or the yeah. saved. And, those, you know, that's the data that you can't really get that, you know, we don't always interview kids that were successful to say, what made you successful or what, how did, why did you not choose this path or what happened? So I think yeah. that's. So maybe this would be happening more often if we aren't doing what we're doing. Clearly there's room for improvement that somehow the Ohio shooter slipped through the cracks. Of course, we know nothing about efforts that were made. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm reading not a whole lot about efforts that were made. Tom, I have read that the young man had had a very difficult life, and so had his biological parents had difficult lives, and he was living with his grandparents. And I've just described 10 to 20% of all school children, perhaps more, in North America. Um, I haven't read much about people's efforts to reach out to this individual. I've read that he was a student at a special ed- in a special education program. Um, we don't know much about what he was getting, but it, it's possible that um, we're doing better at this. Um, I hate to think that it's because we are being punitive with kids who are, um, well, the punitive I'm mostly seeing in response to bullying, although what Carol told us about what is going on in her schools is very heartening. It says to me that we are not, and, and I've certainly come across schools that weren't being exclusively punitive, but um, it just says that this is an imperfect and imprecise science. Who's likely to walk into a building and start shooting? Um, But Tom, I'm with you. The empathy step is um, very powerful. It creates relationships. It improves communication lets kids know that there's somebody who cares and helps us know what's going on inside a kid's head so that thoughts of harming others or self don't stay there unrecognized and unaddressed. What else do we have on this topic, if anything? Go ahead, Nina. Well, I just say I think, too, when we're striving for understanding instead of focusing on extinguishing some behavior or something that we're not, we don't want to be happening in our schools, then that's also where you make progress and solve problems. And that focus is really different. Well, and I think, too, that, that if, if somebody was listening to this program and didn't know how how much skill is involved in effectively implementing collaborative problem-solving they may think that we're kind of discussing a very, how do I say it, um, liberal or relaxed response to this very sad and tragic situation. And I think it's really important to recognize just for the folks that may be listening um, in and are getting new to collaborative problem solving that collaborative problem solving is is very, um, it's very, it works great, but it requires some skill. And the skill has very specific interventions that actually lead to it being effective, such as drilling for information and asking about the who, what, where, when, how, why, and finding out really what's going on for the for the person that is receiving the empathy step 
it's really important to recognize that that is an intervention in itself that can prevent people from having this horrible thing happen. Um, and so it, it just, I guess what I'm saying is that I've been trained in a lot of different models, including, you know, I've, I've studied the Ovea study. I've, I've worked with uh, the people who train Stan Davis's schools where, where um, everyone belongs, which is a pretty standard rubric-based um, model. Uh, and I just think that, that if someone has considerable skill and gets to the kid, that this model could go a long way. And I agree with Nina that we may never know what we've done. But I do think that um, that by looking at, at the data of, of, of the school, who has free and reduced lunch, who's living with grandparents, who's couch surfing, having multidisciplinary teams meet, having a student assistance team, um, it, all of those things give us an avenue but the rubber would hit the road when somebody starts actually having a conversation that works with the kid that's being discussed or looked at through all of these different avenues. So, in other words, it's one thing to be data rich, but I want to have information. I want to be information rich, and then I also want the skill to do something about it. And I think that's where we are, um, you know, schools do, do well if they can. Schools are doing the best they can with what they got, and so let's just give them more and keep doing good things, and if we take that idea that kids do well if they can, well, the adults are too. So I think if we can keep training them, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to implement this model and, and, and really make a difference. Well, we have about two and a half minutes left in today's program. Any final thoughts on this topic? It's hard to talk about. I, I I guess what where my mind goes is I just I don't know I, I guess I feel that we've been fortunate to never have had to 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 deal with something like this where I've worked and um, you know our thoughts and our our hopes go out to the the schools who are experiencing this who have experienced it and just know that there's there's still hope for the future even when something terrible happens. There's always a, a way to learn and, and and have hopefully some growth come from it. It just makes me want to you know get even deeper in collaborative problem solving and keep on spreading the model and seeing what we can do to help our children solve problems now when they're younger so they can be advocates for themselves and know that people are listening. Hmm. I agree with that. And, uh, Carol, I think your point is very well taken. Um, we're talking about this uh, in one way, but we can never lose sight of how many lives are affected by this tragedy. Um, we have three kids who are no longer with us. We have their families. We have another kid. We have other kids who have been injured, their families. We have the kid who did it and his family and he will probably be spending the better part of the rest of his life if he is found guilty um, behind bars, as is with the uh, kid in Massachusetts who I got to know very well who did something similar, not with a gun, but with a knife. Um, and, of course, it's all of the kids and teachers in the building whose lives are affected by this as well. Some of them... Um, uh, many of them, um, irrevocably. 
So, um, boy, worth the energy to do whatever we can to get our get to know our students well, uh, keep them close, know what's going on in their heads, and um, as Nina and Tom said, um, keep that empathy step rolling. Mm-hmm. On that note, we're done with our educators panel today. We got two more left during this school year. Thanks to all three of you for your candor and your willingness to do this, and I can't wait till we do it again next month. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Take care, Ross. Thanks, Ross. You bet. Bye. Bye. To the rest of you, thanks for listening in today. Hope this has been an informative program. Talk to you next week.